0: In, the in 2007, champagne is flowing, strippers are not just frequenting after-hours Wolf of Wall Street parties, but buying second and third homes. There were real estate agents saying that the boom would never end, the prices would shoot to the sky, and the system was built on conventional wisdom about real estate. But there were a few who saw cracks in the conventional wisdom. Published in March of 2010, the big short by Michael Lewis was made into an Academy Award winning movie. It doesn't mean anything anymore, but at that time it did. And it details the looting of our financial system from top to bottom and the lessons that were never learned. So, as always, we will go through the contents of this book. We will talk about some analysis that talks about how I thought the book was quality-wise, and then we'll go into some big picture stuff to tie it all together. (laughs) And the reason I wanted, so I wanted to read this book kind of out of the blue because I was interested in some background things that were going on right now, and I didn't really know the details of what had happened. I'd heard all the terms, the CDOs, the debt swaps, the Michael Burry, and uh, everything that happened around that. I'd heard all those names, but I wasn't sure how they all fitted together, so I was hoping that this book would give me a zoomed-in version of the deal. So first, in the content, there's the setup. The would-be heroes of the story are the investors looking to monetize the demise of the financial system, which is uh, an interesting protagonist to have in your story. Of course, this is nonfiction, tragically. But there were people like Meredith Whitney. She was one of the earliest who predicted the demise of Citigroup and Bear Stearns and saw that there was something seriously wrong going on here. There's Greg Lipman. He was a trader. I think he worked at Deutsche Bank. And he was trying to sell these CDOs or shorting positions or options or something. I don't know. He's trying to sell something related to the, <laughs> the collateralized debt obligations. And I think he, was, he had a different name, but he was reprised by Ryan Gosling in the movie. So this is the guy who was trying to sell this stuff. And then you have the guys at Cornwall Capital. They started in a garage, you know, with just a little over $100,000 and kind of stumbled into this possible investment for their fledgling investment firm. Then you have Steve Eisman, who was a hedge fund manager. He was the one played in the movie by Steve Carell. He was the kind of eccentric hedge fund manager who was very outspoken. And then Michael Burry, who's played by Christian Bale in the movie. And I just, I referenced the movie because I saw the movie, you know, long before I read the book. And I think it's easier to kind of see where they fit in. you know what characters they're representing. So Michael Burry, he was the manager of Scion Capital. That was the company that he founded, the investment company. He's been back in the news recently for shorting Tesla. He's He, uh, at least a few months ago, he had a bunch of positions that were shorting Tesla stock. So anyway, this is a complicated mess. Uh, For the actual financial details, you're going to have to look into it independently. (laughs) This is how I understood it without reviewing the technical background of what actually happened and all the ways that things interacted. So hopefully I got enough that all this makes sense and it's not just me talking out of, you know, where. So initially, and this was one of the areas I wasn't completely clear on, but they had these uh, packaged financing products where they would collect... A whole bunch of different kinds of financing and initially they were of a bunch of different kinds you put them all together and then you sold that but eventually over time it shifted to like 90 95 percent just subprime mortgages so initially it was loans on other kinds of things but then it shifted and so you have something dependent on this one sector of course financial companies are always looking for more financial products new financial products and one of the things in the book that he talks about is how they try to make things give names to things that don't give you any idea. Idea what they actually are what they mean but especially for like brokers if you get paid by the transaction then you want to create a situation where you are gonna have the most transactions possible so it makes sense to have more financial products so one of the products could be not just all the loans on the front end but then repackaging the loans and selling that off in some way too but so like I said they switched to mortgages and most of these were risky mortgages that were given to people who have bad credit and low income there are a whole bunch of problems with these And they would say like some of them would have no papers, what they called it. So you didn't have people verifying that they had this level of income that they were saying they had. In a lot of cases, there's no down payment. I remember there's one particular comedian who talked about this, how he would push people because he was a mortgage broker at first. And he would push people to take out just an extra loan to cover the down payment so that it was more financed. And he did all this, uh, you know, uh, salesman speak to get somebody to believe that that was the best thing to do. But this wouldn't have been an issue, you know, even all this and you have the complexity of it and the naming of it and these people who are getting bad loans. This wouldn't have been such a big issue if the ratings agencies didn't eventually go along with it but there became this demand because uh, once they have this product they can sell more demand came around that people wanted to buy them invest in these things and so they needed more subprime mortgages (laughs) to be able to do it to create more of these and so it's just this feedback loop and what happened was they go to these evaluating agencies rating agencies like Moody's and they would want to slap a AAA rating on these things that were just a whole bunch of subprime mortgages that were not likely to go well even one of the most of the people at these rating agencies were really cagey and wouldn't give away too much information, but one of them just openly said that if they didn't rate these high enough, they didn't rate them AAA, then the banks, the investment banks, would just go to another ratings agency. So there's that issue. And there are a whole bunch of things because all these would end up packaged together just kind of sloppily packaged together. And they would do things like to raise the average credit score of the people across uh, across a tranche. That's what they call collection of these. A tranche of these subprime mortgages. They would just put the highest credit scores with the lowest credit scores without respect to other aspects of these people who are being lended to. So it would make it easier to fudge the numbers to get people to get the ratings agencies to give them AAA recommendations. And there was a huge issue that wasn't taken into account, too, that a lot of the garage investors that the garage investors kind of <laughs> latched onto was the fact that there were variable mortgage rates. So you'd have this teaser mortgage that would come out, you know, for the first year, a couple of years or whatever. And then after that, you'd have a much higher rate that you would have to pay. And so your payments will go up and you'd have a lot more defaults as a result. So anyway, these investors start noticing that there's something very seriously wrong here, like Michael Burry and uh, Steve Eisman and the Cornwall Capital guys. So now they're noticing, okay, they're trying to figure out what's going on here. And then a lot of them, I think it was the Cornwall guys, or maybe it was Eisman and his crew, uh, one of those, but they were going all over the country asking everybody they could ask who was an expert in this area. Okay, explain to me why I'm wrong that this thing is going to, you know, the rug is going to get pulled out from underneath the financial sector here. And we won't make an absolute killing shorting all these things, all the CDOs and the banks that are really are floating these, these products. And uh, this was something that was really kind of awesome to me and <laughs> inspiring, that they were deliberately going around trying to get people to argue them off of their position. That was the whole point, is to find somebody who could give a legitimate argument off of their position. And they went to the ends of the earth to try to find this. But you have Michael Burry, who's kind of the eccentric financial expert. He was a former neurosurgeon, and he compulsively studies, like, these financials, and how markets are working and all that. That's just something that he does. So he was able to pull out that this very bad thing was happening. And the way that this kind of worked is that if you're shorting something, then you have to pay. I'm just, like, getting into options now, you know? (laughs) These are all new methods of investing (laughs) that I didn't know much about. But when you short, then you have to pay a certain amount you know depending on the agreement and the strike price and all that sort of thing you have to pay as long as you're wrong and then you get paid you know once it flips and you're right once the thing falls or whatever so this was the thing and i'm sure it was depicted in the movie for sure i thought this was kind of an awesome thing but he would have to pay a whole bunch of money but it was a fraction of what he could get back if it when it does turn down and i think he was talking about this was actually one of the coolest parts of the dramatized version of this was that he was managing scion capital which had a bunch of investors and the the investors, you know, give him a whole bunch of money and hey, I have to go invest it. And at a certain point they were getting really worried because he was sending out these letters that would say that, okay, this is what I'm looking at and this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. But a lot of them obviously stuck in the conventional wisdom area and being these are people who have enough money to be able to give to him to do this sort of thing so they tend to be pretty pay close attention be pretty savvy when it comes to this stuff and stuck in the conventional wisdom but at a certain point they're they're tried to be you know they tried to make a run on scion capital get their money back and he like invoked this part of their contract or something like that or you know the lending agreement or the brokerage agreement or something where it said that he could prevent giving their money back to them if, if there were extenuating circumstances so he just made up they were extenuating circumstances and didn't give it back because he was so sure of his position. But like I said, a lot of the, the Cornwall people, I think, were big on shorting the banks too. Might have been Eisenman again. I get these mixed up, but some of them were uh, shorting the banks too who were doing this stuff because they were saying that, okay, you guys are going down with this because of the amount of leverage that's being placed in these things. And then toward the end, even those banks started trying to bet against themselves so they could get this stuff back. But so, of course, by the end, because it's a, a wonderful hero type of story, if in a typical one, you get Burry and the Cornwall people and Eisman, and they all make a killing off of this stuff, you know, millions and millions of dollars. The guys who had 110000 in a garage end up walking away with like $100 million, and it was just based on, you know, this one bet of something that made a whole bunch of sense, but was going against all the conventional wisdom. And it's kind of amazing, I mean, it's kind of amazing to think of now, you know, obviously at the time you're not thinking that the entire system can collapse, that the whole financial sector could be so weirdly leveraged, you know, it's like the alliance system in World War One that it could just implode on itself once people start being unable to pay back their, pay their mortgages, and then all of those snowball into each other because then you have people can't afford their homes and business closures and layoffs and and all that sort of thing that all feed into each other <laughs> We're gonna go into the analysis now. Uh just so that was a lot of the content, so obviously you can read it if you if you want to read. It's been out for a while. And it was a fun read. It was just fun to read. You know, it was like a financial story, but depicted as a detective story. And it really does a good job of zooming in on the different people like Michael Burry, you know, he's a character, and he's a former neurologist and you listen to heavy metal and dressed casually in the office, and learned that his son had Asperger's when he went and talked to the teachers about his behavior in class and he said well that's all the stuff that I do and so he believed himself after that point that he had asperger's and then you have Eisman who you know they talk to his wife and all the he doesn't understand like social niceties and and uh, just basic things like that he just doesn't get it but so one of the best parts of the book was getting to see the personalities of the type of people who go against the grain like this and of course some of them after afterwards michael burry he just he closed Scion capital as a i'm not sure if he used it for his own but he just stopped using other people's money he Said it just wasn't worth it because he was very very right in a phenomenal way and made a lot of money for his investors but he didn't like how that relationship worked itself out because it wasn't congratulated they weren't like oh my god you're so brilliant thank you so much there was this contentious thing so he decided to just you know deal with his own money and now he's shorting tesla and betting on inflation which is um totally understandable i don't i don't know about the tesla thing i don't know what he's looking at but definitely when it comes to inflation that makes a whole lot of sense and then eisman I, you know i think he's just still got a big hedge fund made a bunch of money and all that so it was great though to be able to dive in and it really had a lot of good hooks as you went along the way, trying to learn about I mean, this is not a fun, exciting story. This is about collateralized debt obligations and these swaps of these very arcane and obscure financial products that nobody understands or wants to understand or wants to know anything about. But he turned it into a real story and like this story of a like a like I said, a detective story in this giants versus bigger giants. You know, a bunch of millionaires fighting it out, (laughs) and millionaires and billionaires. So, and it paints an incredible picture of just the banking industry because by the end, you learn, and I should have said this as part of the contents, but by the end, you learn that nobody paid for any of this stuff. You know, it wasn't like some people went broke. There were a handful of people who went totally broke. I think one guy lost $9 billion on one trade. It was like the second most in history or something like that for somebody to lose in one trade. (laughs) And there was another guy who was uh, buying up a whole bunch of these CDOs and getting washed out and all that. But by the end, all these bankers who were involved in this whole process, who were just pushing all these subprime loans in absolutely ridiculous ways. That was another thing that the author pointed out when talking to a bunch of these people is that a lot of the investors, the lower level investors, when they went and talked to these banks, you know, to try to figure out what's going on here, then a lot of the times the, the higher ups at the banks who were running these operations didn't understand what was really going on (laughs) i didn't know what was going on so it might not even have been malice in a lot of these cases but still there was such a drive to have these financial products and to be able to do all these things and it was like breaking the back of the american financial system just because these banks were able to leverage so much and create these products to such an incredible degree that it screwed all of us over now so anyway the the book i i really like it it's not a super long book it makes financials sexy i mean how do you do that (laughs) so so i see why they made a movie out of it and and i enjoyed the movie too so anyway big picture wise i really think the story of the 20th century will be a story of the government and large corporations banding together to loot the united states i think that's going to be a huge part of the story of the early 21st century these people play for keeps, you know, this isn't a game to them. This isn't like, oh well, you know, we played by the rules, we were on the court, we played by the rules, and we lost, whatever. They're doing everything that they can <laughs> to make sure it's not just one billion if it could be two, or not just four billion if it could be eight, you know? And it's weird to see that perspective, but it's necessary for people to understand that that's the kind of game that they're playing in. For most people, it's if you're making 40 million a year then you're not going to care so much about making sure that turns to $60 million next year. You know, it's, it's not going to be that big of a deal, but it's absolutely that big of a deal to these kinds of people who are working in these, these kinds of areas. And, of course, we've seen a shift lately of companies trying to be, instead of left alone to their business and just doing their business and flexing their political influence to that end, instead of that, now companies have shifted to being directly involved in politics. To the point of, I just saw, what was it, Life Water is talking about how important, you know, diversity is and how we need to elevate people on the basis of skin color and gender and sexual orientation and all that. But even setting aside that, you know, just the the woke Olympics where all the different companies have to be like, oh, no, I'm more virtuous than you by the terms of whatever has been said by one political party today. But even beyond that, we have, instead of waiting for politicians to pass legislation that might hurt their business, these corporations actually participate in the political process, such as Mark Zuckerberg donating $350 million to participate in the 2020 election in Michigan. And the big tech reps that were part of Biden's transition team and are now in Biden's administration. And every corporation now is expected to participate. It's not an accident the way this has happened. I mean, just a few years ago, the left was demanding corporations to get out of politics, and now they're demanding them to get into it. And of course, like I said, the perpetrators did not learn. They got bailed out by the Obama administration using TARP funds. And it's a problem. We shouldn't have an alliance between billion and trillion dollar corporations and the governing class. That is a problem. One of those is supposed to be looking after our interests. The other is trying to flay us at any given moment to make as much money as possible. So that's the big short and it definitely made me, it made me want to think in terms of trillions instead of millions. (laughs) There's a whole lot else going on. There's a whole bunch more going on than just, oh, well, do I have a vacation place? And there are a lot of people out there, just cutthroat people who are playing for keeps and it doesn't matter if they destroy your pension or destroy your 401k in the process. They are just trying to loot the system as much as they can and then get out. Of course, the response is that we have to be better informed, we have to work harder, and we have to make sure to elect the kinds of people who are going to challenge this kind of orthodoxy that allies corporate governance and actual governance. There's a difference between, okay, trying to support corporations to the benefit through jobs and tax revenue and all that sort of thing of a local community and aligning yourself perfectly politically and legislatively with whatever the mass corporations want or need to do at any given time. So. Anyway, The Big shorts, this was Coffee House, and I much appreciate it. And I'm super excited because we're going to have a slew of books. I have uh, an article up on the Coffee House Corner. It's on Substack, and I have my first article up on there. But now I'm just going to try to bang these out. <laughs> bang these out, the literature, the nonfiction, all this stuff, just banging them out. And we're going to have all sorts of discussions on that basis. First Guess is coming soon. It's a bit of a contentious situation because I don't want to get people who agree with me. I don't want to just pat each other on the back about how right we are. I mean, I do that enough alone. So hopefully that'll be coming soon. We're going to have a whole bunch of books and it's going to be a really good summer. All right, I hope all is well and I'll see you on the next one. Okay.